neuroscience has affirmed, I think, that the things that God tells us to do, pray, practice solitude, fast, participate in the Sabbath, keep that day holy, right? It's part of the Ten Commandments. That these things are actually good for our health. People who practice the Sabbath live longer. Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Hey everyone, I'm Ken Keithley. And I'm Benjamin Quinn. And in today's episode of Christ and Culture, our own Nathaniel Williams is going to talk with Paul LaPena about neuroscience and the soul. And after that, we'll have another edition of On My Bookshelf. But first, it's time for our popular segment called Headlines, in which we look at some aspect of the headlines, various parts of culture, from a Christian perspective. In today's headlines, you may not expect this, Dr. Keithley, but we're going to talk about your favorite, Taylor Swift. Are you a Swifty? <laughs> I appreciate Taylor Swift. I can't say that I'm exactly a Swifty. But here to talk to us about Taylor Swift is a good friend, Faith Steele. Faith is married to Patrick, and they attend Imago Day Church here in Raleigh. She also works on faculty support specialist staff here at Southeastern, is a current MA and Old Testament student, is getting ready to graduate. Faith, as I understand, next spring mm-hmm. is pursuing PhD work in Old Testament, but she's also a self-proclaimed Swifty. So, Faith, tell us about Taylor Swift. So, Taylor Swift, you know, singer, songwriter, be pretty pretty awkward at this point if people don't really know who yep. she is. Yep. You know? So were you a fan still when she was still a country singer? Yeah, I started liking Taylor Swift in 2010. So, you know, back when only two albums out. I mean, for me, it was elementary school, but it was... And she kind of hit, correct me if I'm wrong, but she kind of became a household name initially through YouTube, right? She started putting some of her own music on, on YouTube? I don't think so. Hmm. Uh, she got discovered in Nashville, like, you know, at the place that everybody in country music gets yeah. discovered, the Bluebird Cafe, yeah. um, met a, like, aspiring label producer, and he was like, you're the person I want to start out with. So was she a waitress there? Is that, is, is, is that true? Uh, she was performing. Okay, um, performing. Okay. Yeah, so she was like and one of their... she was how old at the time? Uh, I think like 16. Yeah, and she was writing her own music, which no doubt was part of the attraction there. Yes, yes. Absolutely. So uh, you're going to tell us a little bit about the economic impact of her tour. So obviously when we do uh, podcasts here, we're talking about faith and culture issues. Taylor Swift is a big part of especially pop culture, but there's something even deeper that takes place when she shows up for a concert. It makes quite the impact. Talk to us about that. Yeah. So Taylor, she just finished uh, her first North American leg of her tour. This is her first like, you know, big tour since the pandemic. Um, she was supposed to tour during 2020 for mm-hmm. a previous album. but So she's had like four albums come out since that time. And so this is her Eras tour where she's performing, you know, across her discography, but especially these four albums that she hasn't toured before. And so she's only been doing stadium tours, which means that like you have to have like 70,000 seats in your stadium for Taylor to come and play at your arena. Garth Brooks level. We're talking Garth Brooks level work. I just had to mention that in there. You can go ahead. I just had to mention that that's what Brooks does. But go ahead. Absolutely. Um, it's also like Super Bowl level sort yeah, of things too. True. <laughs> Very true. So, um, you know, so she's only been going to, to these bigger cities with these huge stadiums. And so in order to go see Taylor, you kind of have to travel, especially if you – 
I live in kind of smaller states like North Carolina where she's not come. So people have traveled like hours to go see her like across the country. And so it's been a big uh, economic boost in this like tourism. Um, So just because a lot of people are coming in, they're staying in hotels and Airbnbs and, you know, seeing the city in preparation for seeing Taylor Swift and her Mm. sold out 70,000 stadium tour. Mm. So the Swiftonomics are pretty deep, right? So it's not only the cost of the ticket, which I'm sure is pretty high, but even hotels, restaurants, all, all the things are sort of benefiting from this. And so when Taylor comes to town, it's not as simple as Taylor showed up. It's everybody knows it and everybody benefited. Is that Yeah, fair? absolutely. So the Swiftonomics are good. Absolutely. You think she'd come to Bun, North Carolina? Um, I don't have a 70,000 stadium. but Yeah, probably not for the tour. Okay. <laughs> so how do we think Christianly? faith about Taylor Swift, her work, her economic impact, all the rest of it. How do we think about that from a Christian perspective? I think something that stands out about Taylor in comparison, you know, with other celebrities is Taylor has a focus like on generosity. So like one of the things that's come out after her finishing this North American leg is that she gave $100,000 bonuses to her like some of her staff. So people like who drove the buses carrying like all of her equipment and other like cast like other crew sort of people who are setting up and tearing down Mm. and like wrote them like handwritten thank you notes to give Mm. to them like at the end of this as a thank you for you know taking 24 weeks out of their year um, to work on this tour yeah that's fantastic we need to hear more of those stories I'm sure that there are more of them but that's encouraging to hear that somebody like Taylor would take the time to write handwritten notes to be so generous to people who no doubt have been away from their families for quite a long time Yeah, absolutely. I'm curious. uh, I want to ask you another question in just a second. But what was it that attracted you to Taylor's uh, music early on in the first place? I I think Taylor's a fantastic lyric writer. She tells stories with her songs. She has beautiful metaphors. Like, it's just very engaging to listen to. And so I just always like that about Taylor, that she's telling stories with her songs. So one might describe, I'm just going to keep making up words like Swiftonomics here. So (laughs) one might describe her... Uh, you said discography earlier, so her sort of her body of work as one large polemic against, I don't know, variety of relationships that she's had over the years. Could you call her pop work, pop polemics of some of some sort, kind of pop and polemics <laughs> blended in there? Would you would you say that really is the theme or the heartbeat of her work? Here on the Christ and Culture <laughs> podcast is the very first time you heard that word. Swiftonomics <laughs> and pop polemics. Uh, well, I would say that Taylor does write more than just polemically against exes. Um, you know, she she writes about a variety of relationships, you know, kind of spanning from, I mean, definitely a lot of them are about, you know, uh, romantic relationships, whether those are positive or negative. Uh, but also she writes sometimes about her family and also about like the pop industry. So she does have some variety there. Will she go back to country at some point? Will she will she get back to the country style? I really hope so, because she hasn't re-recorded her debut album yet. Yeah. So yeah. she really needs to dig back in there for it. Faith. This has been fun. Thank you so much for your thoughts and for your help. What can studying the brain teach us about God? We're delighted to have with us on the podcast today, Dr. Paul LaPena. Dr. LaPena is a neurologist in Greenville, South Carolina, an associate professor of neurology at the Edward Via College of Osteopathic Medicine, Carolina's campus. Did I say that right? You did it. Okay. It was great. Perfect. As an associate professor of neurology, Dr. LaPena has won numerous awards for his teaching. He's also won awards for his care for patients, and we're just delighted to have him 
here on Christ and Culture today. Dr. LaPena, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Dr. LaPena, tell us a little bit about your story. How did you come to faith in Christ? And just tell us about your journey to that point. Yeah, sure. That's probably the most important question uh, here is, is, yeah, kind of that pursuit of Christ or how Christ pursued me. Um, so I, I've always been a general theist. I just believe that that God exists for as long as I can remember. And it wasn't just that. I even had knowledge of, of the attributes of God when I was a child. So I believe that God was all loving. God was all knowing. Uh, God was perfectly good. Um, God was omnipresent. So I had these uh, beliefs, and they simply just were that I felt God's presence and felt as though I had a relationship with God as a child, that he was near to me. And also there's this kind of witness of my grandmother who just walked with the Lord very closely and continues to do so. And that had a profound witness on me as well. However, I was not a Christian. I did not know what Christianity was. I had never opened a Bible. I had never read a page of Scripture before. So I, I wasn't a Christian. I got a uh, athletic scholarship to run cross-country and track at Virginia Tech, and running had become this like huge idol for me. It was, you know, like everything. My sophomore year, I, I became the best runner on our team, and I thought, boy, you know, if I keep up at, at this pace, I'm going to end up being a professional runner, and, and maybe even a very good one. So... I just, you know, continued to pursue that with just like everything I had. And I realized as, as I got better at running, I was actually becoming more of a miserable person. Hmm. <laughs> and that seemed very problematic to me. So I had this idol and my physical health became very poor through college. I, I had four surgeries. Um, most of them occurred during my sophomore year uh, just from overdoing it. So I kept having these hernias and uh, one of the surgeries went terribly wrong. So I was hospitalized for for two weeks. And I remember, you know, my physical health was falling apart. I couldn't run anymore. I couldn't like sacrifice things to my idol anymore, mm, which was yeah, running. I was yeah. just like left alone in a hospital bed. My mental health as a result of that was poor. And I was just spiritually dead. And I was, I was struggling. There was things going on back home with my family. I was in relationships that just were not good. So there's all these things going on. I just felt miserable. And I remember kind of laying in that hospital bed and reflecting, you know, I had all these hardships as a child, but I was still full of joy. Uh, I was um, hopeful. I, I had this kind of better attitude about things, but now I found myself miserable. And I wonder, well, what's the difference? You know, why, why was as a child in these hardships, I handled it this way, and now I handle it this other way? So I just continued to kind of grow in... Uh, misery as I wasn't able to run at that point. Eventually I got back to running, but um, I just couldn't do it at that time. And said, you know, that's been my identity. So I felt like I was at this kind of rock bottom state. And then uh, before things got better, they got drastically worse. There was the shootings at Virginia yeah, Tech. Yeah. I was on campus during that. Mm. Um, I was walking towards the building, heard the gunshots. Um, and I remember over those next few weeks, just I remember walking across the drill field at one point and actually feeling as though I was going to like sink into the ground and die. <laughs> I just felt miserable, this like existential angst that just felt like it was going to bury me. And I remember uh, kind of hearing about this later, but 
when I was in the hospital and kind of from that time frame all the way through when I eventually become a Christian, there was a group of men that were consistently praying for me. When I was in my hospital bed, they were literally in the parking lot in their cars praying that I would come to Christ. Wow. And it's this really amazing story of their persistence and in, in prayer and how much prayer uh, plays a role. So I remember there wasn't, um, it, it, I got invited, I think probably by them, to some event. And I'd mentioned before that sometimes we hear things and we contemplate things. Like you, you hear a great theological position, you contemplate that, you wrestle with it. You, you you take it in, you rearrange it, you take it apart. Um, so you're kind of manipulating this idea, not in a bad way. But I remember going to this event, and someone just simply read the Sermon on the Mount. And I remember it, it entered me and rearranged me rather than me, it. And after hearing that, I just kind of like left there a different person. Wow. And so that's kind of, that's how I came to Christ and, uh, you know, praise, praise uh, be to God, praise to God working through those other people who persistently prayed for me uh, through Athletes in Action, which is an NCAA Christian uh, group. So, boy, yeah, God was good. God is good. That's amazing. Uh, literally, yeah. the, uh, the word really is amazing in, in its it ability to, to pierce our hearts and transform us. Um, so that's, a, that's an amazing testimony. How did you go from, from being a, um, a runner at Virginia Tech, new in your faith, to being interested in neuroscience? Like, how, yeah. tr- Tell us that part of the journey. Yeah, so as an NCAA athlete, I don't know if this is for all NCAA athletes or if it's just those who come from poor financial situations, but all of my testing was free. So I could take the MCAT uh, for free. I could take any uh, graduate entrance exam for free. So I just took my MCAT. And um, I ended up getting into medical school. And when I got there, I said, boy, this is a mistake. I hate this. Um, <laughs> it was just terrible. Just this constant memorizing um, and regurgitating. So then um, eventually, though, we get to the neuroscience curriculum. And I start learning about the brain and all of its complexities. So there's 86 billion neurons in the brain. So this is one of the most complex things that we know about in the universe. And I really just wondered how it worked. And I don't mean like neurophysiologically. I don't mean how does an electrical signal propagate uh, through an axon or something like that. How do you know, the dendrites and synaptic end terminals work? Those things are interesting, but that's not what I was talking about. What really interested me was like, well, how from this kind of material uh, thing, how, how does thought and how does abstract thinking how do we have free will? How do these things, you know, how does that relate to this physical structure? So those questions really drove me into deeper analysis um, to try to figure out what is the relationship between, you know, the the claim that we have a soul um, and we also have this kind of physical brain. What's the relationship here? Honestly, that's what I was going to ask you because um, here you have this remarkable spiritual experience where the word enters your heart and you have this, um, this remarkable experience and then you go study neuroscience. As a neuroscientist, how, how do you make sense of that, uh, as, of the soul? And, and as you think about that, are we only our brains? Like how do you, how do you reconcile these two parts of your lives in your yeah. work? Yeah, so there's, a, there's a lot to say about that. Uh, so it's hard to like summarize it in less than an hour. <laughs> but 
What neuroscience shows us is the physical correlations between brain states and mental states. And you can look further into that and you can look into the physical substratum, um, the neurobiology and all of that. But it's always showing you a correlation. And then there are always different ways in which we can interpret these correlations. So yeah, neuroscience, it shows us correlations, but what we do with those correlations is a philosophical endeavor. But philosophically, I think it's very difficult, perhaps impossible to be a physicalist, meaning that I am just a physical thing. I am just a material thing. There's no spiritual component to my being. There's nothing like a soul or a mind. I find that very difficult, mostly through a philosophical lens. One, it's, it's contrary to scripture, but also just philosophically, matter has distinct properties. It's um, quantifiable. You can measure it. There's a length, a width, a math, and um, a mass, things like that. When you define matter, you're removing intentionality. You're removing uh, what's called teleology. So those things in the Enlightenment have been divorced from how we define the material world. So those things have been divorced. Um, all um, qualitative components to matter have also been eliminated so that we're just focused on what can be measured. Okay, so you get these like defined properties of what matter is. But then when you look at a human, a human person, well, something very different uh, comes about, right? Mm. I mean, um, all of a sudden now you have qualitative properties and you have intentionality. Well, matter doesn't have those properties. So how could a person be material or purely material if the person has properties that matter doesn't have? Now, there's a lot more to say about that. You can go a lot deeper into that. But it just seems impossible to me that that could be the case. So that's that's kind of one perspective. The second part of the question was, you know, can you reduce the person to their brain, right? Right. So the answer to that is, is definitely no. Um, for the reasons I already said, in that the human being has capacities, powers, abilities that are not in matter. So you can't reduce a person to the material. So that's one part of it. Another one is when you try to reduce a person to their brain or to their mind, you're committing what's called the myriological fallacy. So the myriological fallacy is when you ascribe an attribute to a part of a thing that only makes sense when ascribed to the whole thing, right? So, for example, I'm afraid of flying. Like, I just get terrified when I'm on an airplane. Um, I'm getting a little bit better, but it's still pretty <laughs> bad, right? But if you pick me up from the airport and you say, hey, Paul, how was your flight? And I said, boy, you know, my brain was just terrified. Mm, like, that would yeah. sound really weird, yeah. right? No, my brain wasn't terrified. I, Paul LaPena, was terrified. Uh, this person, right? Not one of my parts. Now, neuroscience wants to add to that. It's almost like a layer of stupidity that your amygdala was scared, right? Well, that makes even less sense. So we're ascribing attributes to a part, which only makes sense of a whole. The same thing happens if we believe that we're essentially a mind, an immaterial entity. The same principle is applying that. Look, I don't, I'm not a mind. I have a mind. 
you can't be one of your parts. Mm. Um, so if we're ascribing these psychological attributes to the brain, or if we're ascribing these attributes to the mind, either way, we're we're um, committing the myriological fallacy. These psychological attributes can only be ascribed to the whole person. And that means the person is an irreducible substance. From an Aristotelian Thomistic perspective, the human being is not two different substances that are mysteriously interacting. And the soul or mind is not some emergent property or substance that comes from the complexity of the brain. A human person is one substance composed of body and soul. So I imagine as a neuroscientist, you study the brain and you also have this faith and you have this perspective on the human person. Other neuroscientists uh, who are not believers, I would imagine they would, they would disagree with this. And, and, and so is that fair to say? Yeah. So I would say a distinction like, so there's like clinical, there's, there's folks that are mostly involved with uh, clinical medicine, neurologists, neurosurgeons, and the like. And then you have neuroscientists that are more teaching and doing research. I'm kind of doing both of those things, some in both worlds. For people who are in clinical medicine, you know, they have to have an excellent clinical acumen to do the job that they do. So I never want to criticize them for what beliefs may emerge from that because they're not mm. dedicated to thinking about those things. They're just trying to, someone's hemorrhaging and they're yeah, trying to stop yeah. the hemorrhage. Yeah. Someone's having a stroke and, and, and so forth. Someone's having a seizure and they're, they're intervening. So they're not thinking as this is happening, well, what's the relationship between right, this right, person's right, right. mind? But I do think subconsciously as neurologists, it's like every time we see brain damage, well, we see damage to the mind. And when we see brain death, well, we see, by all appearance, death to the mind. And when we see brain death, that legally is death to the person, even if their heart is still beating, they're still considered dead. So from their perspective of this, just imagine someone who's done this for 50 years. I mean, these correlations start to look like causation mm -hmm. after a while. So that's, that's kind of one category in which I have no judgment. I would just say that I think if they reflected upon it further, they would come to different conclusions. Then if we get to neuroscientists who actually look into these things like cognitive neuroscientists, I think that they're mostly just mistaken, mm. that um, they're not seeing that they're so caught up in the neurological fallacy. They don't see that they're ascribing attributes to parts that can only make sense of the whole. I mean, I, I read these papers and they literally don't make sense if mm. you take it from that vantage point. I think they just have an abundance of confidence that science is going to like close this epistemic gap in our knowledge about how mental states and brain states relate to each other. But I would say in principle, it's impossible hmm. that you just cannot reduce the, the powers or uh, capacities of the human person to their physical um, substrates. It just leads to what's called like um, a reduction to absurdity. Hmm. How have you seen all of this play out in your own medical practice? I mean, how, how does this understanding that you have, how does that affect how you care for your patients? Yeah, and that's the most important thing. So we can talk about like these big philosophical and theological ideas, but what does it look like on the ground? Right. You right. know, on the ground level, why does this matter? Well, boy, I'll tell you, I mean, yeah, it makes me the physician that I am, right? So 
if you are just your mind or if you are just your brain, well, at times in our life, whether we're very young and developing or whether we're very old and we're losing neurons, we're um, kind of deficient in certain capacities. So our memories will start to fail us. Um, you know, we won't be able to do a lot of the, the things that we once were able to do at our peak, right? Or some people have severe intellectual disabilities and they're just never able to um, think deeply about things. They're never able to do abstract reasoning or form images or memories or things like that. They have severe intellectual disabilities. And I have many patients um, that fit into that category. But what would we say about those people? I mean, if you're just your brain or if you're just your mind, well, if you lose those capacities, then have you lost your humanity with it, right? It seems that you you would if you have those definitions. So I would very strongly push against those tendencies to see people as one of their parts, but to rather see them as an irreducible whole. And that gives to each person dignity. Mm -hmm. um, so also in having a soul, so in having a soul, and all human beings have a soul at all stages of life, human beings have a rational soul, even if they can't display rationality due to the immaturity of neurons or lack of development or through pathological states. But these people all still have a soul, and that means that they are created in the image of God, and that gives to each person infinite worth and dignity. So when I have someone before me who is suffering from some type of pathological state, I cannot look at that person as their disease. I cannot look at them just as their brain, which is failing them. I cannot look at them just as their mind that is failing them. But this is an irreducible human being that is created in the image of God and is of infinite worth and dignity. So that's how I approach patients. You told a story the other night at, a, at an event we were at uh, about a, a very specific way in which that informed how you cared for a particular patient. Do you, do you feel up for sharing that story? Yeah, sure. So um, I work just in the hospital now. So during the COVID-19 pandemic, I was really involved. And I went well beyond what I do as a, as a neurologist. So, boy, I mean, I was... I was I had to relearn how to work ventilators. I needed to do all these things. But one of the things that during kind of the peak of the pandemic was, you know, when, when someone's in the hospital, well, you have family members come and visit you. You have chaplains coming in and praying for you. And there was this period, kind of early pandemic at its peak, in which the whole hospital was essentially COVID patients and their family members had COVID. So visitors couldn't come in. The chaplains couldn't come into the rooms to pray for the patients. So it's like, okay, well, what do I what do I do? You know? I need to fill roles that are beyond the scope of being a neurologist. I need to care for the whole person. So um, I said, I need to be like a family member to this person. Mm -hmm. I need to be like a chaplain to this person. I need to be a neurologist as well. So that was really, really challenging. Mm -hmm. um, I remember there was one woman who was in her, I think she was 89 or 90 years old, and she was um, on the ventilator for a while, secondary to COVID-19 pneumonia and acute respiratory distress syndrome related to that. She um, survives it, 
and they, they extubate her, but she's not waking up. And after three days, no one can really get her to, to wake up. So they consult me to figure out, oh, why isn't she waking up? So I hooked her up to EEG, which looks at brain waves, and she was seizing continuously, although her body wasn't convulsing. She was in what's called subclinical status epilepticus. So I treated her out of that, but all it did was give her like minimal consciousness, and she was just moaning in agony. So I remember leaving the room and just kind of feeling like this oceanic tug to go back in. That's the Holy Spirit, yeah, right? It's yeah. directing us. Okay, okay. Well, I'm not going to quench the Spirit. <laughs> uh, I'm going I'm to go back in there. So I take some of my PPE off because I looked like Darth Vader in there. Uh, I put it on like a simple N95 and went in and laid my hands on her forehead. And uh, as, as I said, I, I always do the sign of the cross on the, on the forehead to get tactile stimuli mm. into a brain that's hurting because maybe they can't hear me. So it's a sign. A Christian is here. So um, I knew she was a Christian from Chart Review. Uh, so, you know, I, I prayed over her. Um, I asked for uh, just God to be present to her. And I remember as I'm praying, I, I, I finished praying. I open up my eyes and she's just staring right back at me, just looking at me intently um, or intensely. And she's trying to say something to me, but she just can't speak. She just cannot get words out. Her mouth is dry. She's been intubated for a long time, and she just can't speak. So she keeps um, trying to voice to me something, and I, I talk to her for a while, and you know, try to get a TV show on that she likes, <laughs> and all of that. And um, so finally, I get up. I say, I got to go take care of other patients. You know, I have like twenty other COVID patients to go see. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I'm opening up the door, and just as clear as day, I hear her say, "Thank you." Wow. And it was just this beautiful um, kind of uh, manifestation of her humanity that mm. just kind of like came forth. And I remember reflecting on that. It just really confirmed for me, boy, you know, what if we treat patients as their pathological state? What if I had gone in there and said, you know what? Her brain's not functioning. She probably can't even hear what I'm saying. There's no point in praying for this woman. Mm. Why would I pray for her? She's not going to understand what I'm saying. You know, her brain is injured. Or what if we think that, well, her mind is just not there, you know? Um, no, this is an irreducible human being, so um, I'm going to treat her as such. I'm going to pray for her um, in this moment. And, and so I did. And um, she did end up dying, but it was this, I don't know, this kind of, uh, what I try to tell people is sometimes at the end of life, having done this for a little while now, there can be unexpected beauty at the end of this earthly life uh, but we need to give people opportunities we need to give uh, God room to work mm. that's a beautiful story and uh, I appreciate your example in that and how you're caring for the mind but also the soul in your work you've kind of uh, touched on this throughout mm. the entire conversation but how has your work with the brain shaped you as an individual yeah, so related to uh, spiritual formation, I guess I'd say a few, a few things here. So we talk about this a lot, that there are certain things, uh, there's, a, there's a certain way in which we as human beings are wired. There are certain things that are good for us objectively, and there are certain things that are bad for us objectively. Um, goodness is defined, I think, as not this subjective, um, well, I feel quite well or something. It is objective human flourishing. God has created us in a certain way in which if we live in accordance with the things that he's telling us, we naturally flourish. I 
And by that, I don't mean some funny prosperity thing. I mean, no, no, God has just designed us to live in such a way. Neuroscience um, looks at all sorts of things. A study of hope. So you'll, you'll look at, well, what if someone's more hopeful? Um, you know, is this good or is it bad for their health? If someone practices gratitude, um, is this good or bad for their health? If people practice solitude and prayer, is this good or bad for their health? If people practice the Sabbath, does that have a, a positive influence on, on the health of other people? Or sorry, on that person. Um, the answer to those things is like, yes, 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 and yes. <laughs> so um, it so happens, it so happens that um, the commands of God are also blessings. Wow. So wow. that neuroscience has affirmed, I think, that the things that God tells us to do, pray, practice solitude, fast, participate in the Sabbath, keep that day holy, right? It's part of the Ten Commandments. That these things are actually good for our health. People who practice the Sabbath live longer. Hmm. Uh, people who uh, pray regularly, um, practice silence and solitude, have better mental health. And so for those who are hopeful and have faith and, and such and such, right? So these things are good for you, uh, right? I do feel this kind of... Um, it's like we have to wrap things up into scientific language for people to believe it. That I have to say, look at this study that shows that such and such is good for you. Uh, so I have to point to the neuroscience, right? The Bible already says these things, right? The Bible already tells us to do these things, and that should be sufficient. Mm. Um, so sometimes I feel like I'm kind of making something look a little bit more flashy, but really the Bible already said these things. We have to kind of, in our modern time, wrap this up into scientific language for people to say, oh, okay, well, it must be good then, and the Bible must be right then. I, w I would push back a little bit against that and just say, you know, do the things that God has told you to do. Aquinas thought that the highest science, so he goes through the different sciences, the very highest science is theology, okay? Because theology, its subject matter is God. Hmm. Yeah. Okay, so theologians can, can embrace that. They're scientists. They're studying the highest things. And, and all the theologians at Southeastern rejoiced, right? Yes, <laughs> that's, that's right. So uh, they too are scientists of a thing higher than, than what I'm studying. So yes, do the things that God has told you to do, not because of some legalistic uh, whatever, but rather because God has made you in a certain way. He wants you to thrive. Um, the, gl the glory of God is man fully alive, says Irenaeus, right? He has wired us in a certain way. And when we follow the way of God, that glorifies God because he sees us fully alive and he rejoices in that. Dr. Lapina, this has been fantastic. Uh, just a, a fascinating conversation. And we're so grateful for your work and, and your faithfulness in that work. How can people follow your work and, um, and follow you on social media, website, uh, otherwise? So I am not on social media. Probably wise. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's very intentional. Uh, so you, you, I do have like a graveyard account on Facebook. Um, I lost the password and the email doesn't exist anymore. So it's just like <laughs> out there. Uh, boy, oh boy. I wish I could get rid of it. Um, but otherwise, yeah, I'm not on social media. Um, I don't have a website. And this is, this is all intentional. I do have uh, some of the talks that I've given through what's called the Thomistic Institute. They are, um, if you go to the podcast app and you, you type in Paul LaPena, L-A-P-E-N-N-A, -N -N -A, 
uh, these talks will will pop up. If you go to SoundCloud, Spotify, uh, anything where you could listen to a, a podcast, if you just type my name in, those talks will come up. I do some talks on neuroscience and free will. I do talks on the problem of suffering. I do talks on uh, human dignity and then neuroscience and the soul. So there's a few different uh, things on there. Listen to them if you want, but it's probably better just to read your Bible. <laughs> Oh, mate. Well, we, we, it's been a delight, Dr. Lapinda. Thank you so much for being with us today. And maybe we should all follow his example and get off social media. So. <laughs> <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you so much. It's good to be here. Now it's time for that part of our show. In fact, it's one of the listener favorites part of our show called On My Bookshelf. And this is the part where we ask faculty, staff, and friends at Southeastern, what are you reading? So Faith, you are in a program in which you're earning a PhD in Old Testament. But talk to us about one of the favorite books you've read lately. Yeah, so uh, Dr. Mullins' Enjoying the Bible is definitely a book that's been really shaping for some of my research interests. Uh, since I study a lot of Hebrew, uh, you know, his book is about how to read the Bible as a piece of literature that is poet is poetic. And so how do we read poetry and um, how can that be more than just like a cognitive enterprise, but that this is an emotive sort of literature um, that should shape the way that we see and understand God. So the various ways in which uh, the psalmist speaks to us in poetical terms, when you say emotive, Tell me a little more. Yeah. So you don't just read a psalm like, okay, well, the psalmist told me to do this thing. And so then I'll just do the thing and you move on. Uh, Like Dr. Mullins uses a lot of examples from Psalm 119. And so, for example, it says like, uh, your word is a light to my feet, a lamp to my path. Uh, So that isn't supposed to just say, well, hey, like the Bible is good, but it's supposed to cultivate this image and this emotion of how do you feel in the darkness when you see the light? Like the light is a thing that you're drawn to. It's a source of hope and this idea of like being drawn to God's word. It's it's not just a you do this thing, but that it actually is cultivating this feeling so that you'll desire God's word. What you're saying is you don't just read with your mind. You actually read with the whole person. Absolutely. The name of the book, again, uh, you, you referred to Dr. Mullins. This is one of our faculty at Southeastern. His name is Matthew Mullins. title of the book is Enjoying the Bible, Literary Approaches to Loving the Scriptures. Thank you, Faith. And thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, give us a five-star rating and brief review on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.